Well, good morning. We have come to the last couple verses in the book of James. I kind of have a sense of regret in saying farewell to this great book. It has impacted me. I trust that it has impacted you as well. If you'll remember, I introduced this book by describing James as a fellow who comes at us in love, but he's got a battle axe in one hand and a broadsword in the other. And he has penetrated my heart. He has convicted me. He has cut me in some areas. He has certainly shown the light of God's truth on inconsistencies and hypocrisies and sham. He's a tough guy. He called us to a radical form of living which in his vocabulary is just the normal Christian life. Let me just remind you of some of the things he said to us. He opened the book by telling us that the goal of life is not comfort, it's character. So when circumstances are tough, don't whine about them, rejoice about them. Because God uses difficult times as a tool in your life to develop your faith. So instead of trying to change your circumstances, let God use your circumstances to change you. James said, if you hear the word and know the word and can quote the word, but you're not doing the word, you're deceiving yourself. James said, if you think you're spiritual and you can't control your tongue, your spirituality is worthless. James said, if you think you're spiritual and you don't visit orphans and widows in their distress, if you don't care for people who can't pay you back, your spirituality is worthless. James says, if you think you're spiritual and you can't keep yourself from being stained by the world, your spirituality is worthless. If you think you're spiritual and yet you harbor prejudice toward others, either economically or maybe skin color, your spirituality is worthless. James says if you say you have faith, but you don't have works, your faith is worthless. It's dead. James says if you think you're wise, the test is not what you know, it's what you show. Because real wisdom demonstrates itself by you being pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, and full of good fruits. James says if you know the right thing to do and you're not doing it, it's sin. James says if you're hoarding possessions for yourself when others around you have need, it's wrong. James says if you have to prop up your words with an I swear, I vow, honest to God, your life is inconsistent because your character ought to be the platform by which people believe your words. There are 108 verses in James' letter, and they all seem to combine to say one thing. If my Christian life isn't practical, then it isn't the Christian life. If my Christian life isn't practical, then it isn't real. And after listening to James for all these months, listening to those penetrating words, squirming under those applications, 
seeing that he's a guy that sees life as cut and dried, that he's very blunt, he's very unwavering in his manner. It's kind of refreshing to me to see how he closes this letter because he closes it with compassion for the person who has strayed away. He closes the letter with concern for those who have fallen. It's like he puts down his battle axe and he puts down his broadsword and he begins to minister to the person who's falling behind. Look at verse 19. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Christians have been accused of being the only army in history that abandons its wounded. And I'm afraid that's too often true. We can be so ministry-oriented that we ignore or abandon those who stumble and fall. We can be so caught up in the action, so caught up in the battle that we don't take the time to reach out to a wounded comrade. One of Jesus' most famous lines is in Matthew 7, 3, when he said, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own eye? And some people misinterpret that to mean that Jesus is saying you shouldn't worry about your brother. But what Jesus is simply saying is, you're not to try to help your brother with hypocrisy. Because if you read two verses later, Jesus says, you're to take the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There is a place for taking specks and or logs out of your brother's eye. And if you think about it, The eye is a very sensitive thing. I can't think of a place on my body that's more sensitive, more defensive than my eye. Years ago, my brother Norm got a piece of metal in his eye, and I took him to the ER, and they took him in, and they took me back with him, and they put his head in a vise, and they pried open his eyelids, and they clamped them open, And then the doctor took some tweezers and a surgical knife and began to flick that piece of metal in his eyeball. And I don't mind telling you, I couldn't look. I turned away because that is sensitive stuff. Well, let me tell you, doing spiritual surgery on that speck in your brother's eye is sensitive stuff as well. And it can be very difficult to do. And that's what James is emphasizing as he closes this letter. Now, let me balance this because the Bible doesn't teach us that as a church we're to have a hospital mentality. Some some churches do. A hospital mentality means we only care about people who are inside our walls. The Bible teaches us we're to have a military mentality. The military cares for its wounded, but it doesn't exist for that purpose. You see, we are in a battle, and we are to have radical commitment in that battle. But when someone is wounded, we are to care for the wounded. We are to have a MASH unit, a mobile army surgical hospital. We're to be 
going forward in the battle, but also reaching back and caring for our fallen comrades. And that's what I want us to see in these two verses. I want us to look at three points. First point is the triage. Triage, as you know, is the system used in a mass unit to decide who gets treatment first. We're all in the spiritual battle. We all get some cuts and bruises. We all get beat up in the battle. But the question is, who is it that's in urgent need of care? Who's at the top of the list of that triage list? And he spells it out in verse 19. He says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, Now, because verse 20 refers to this individual as a sinner and talks about saving his soul from death, some have concluded that James is referring here to an unbeliever. But I think it's rather obvious that he's talking here about a believer. Because he says in verse 19, My brethren, if any among you, among you brethren, strays from the truth and someone turns him back to the truth, He's a a brother. He's there. He has turned away from what he knows, and you need to bring him back to that. Now, some people don't like to be called a sinner. I've had people tell me, I'm not a sinner, I'm a saint. Well, if you have that attitude, you're a sinner. The Bible doesn't reserve that word sinner for unbelievers. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. He didn't say I was a sinner. He says I am a sinner and I am foremost among sinners. James earlier in his book called you a sinner in James 4.8. He said, cleanse your hands, you sinners. So as he closes out the book here, James is talking about a believer. And what's his symptom? He has strayed from the truth. He knows the truth. He was on course, but he strayed away. He was on course, but he made a left turn where he should have gone straight. And this can happen in two ways. One is theologically. A person can stray from the truth by believing things that are contrary to God's Word. In fact, Paul used this same phrase in 2 Timothy 2.18, talking about two guys by the name of Hymenaeus and Philetus. He said, They are men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. You see, they strayed away in doctrine. That's possible. But the other way you can stray away from the truth is practically, and that's when you stray away with your feet. You may stay with your lips and stray with your feet. That happened to Peter. Remember when Jesus talked to him in Matthew 26, 33, and he spoke up and said, even though everybody falls away, I'll never fall away. If everybody else goes astray, I'll never go astray. Now, what do we say? Never say never. And Jesus said to him, this very night before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter talked straight, but he walked crooked. And I think that's what James has primarily in mind here, is the person who may still be talking straight, but they're walking crooked. And I think that's why in verse 20, he describes it as the error of his way, the error of his path. You say, well, why would someone stray from the truth of God? Well, James told us back in James 4.4, 4, 
He said it's because they have been enticed by friendship with the world. And when I become a friend of the world, I become an enemy of God. One of the most sobering examples in the scripture is a fellow by the name of Demas. In Philemon 24, Paul called him my partner in ministry. But then later, in the last book Paul wrote in the New Testament, he said this in 2 Timothy 2.10, Demas has deserted me, having loved this present world. Wow. He went astray because he loved, was enticed by this present evil world. And that's a symptom that shows up in all of us in varying degrees. I can relate to the hymn, I don't know about you, the hymn writer who says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We've all got that virus. We've all got that tendency. But James is talking about the person who has wandered away and they're not turning back. They are staying on that path. They are straying away. Now, when I describe that, who do you think about? Maybe some of you think about yourself. So this is an issue you need to get resolved. Others of you think of a person that comes to mind. Well, that's the person on the top of your triage list. That person who is strained and hasn't turned back. That's your person. That's priority number one in your life for urgent care. Second issue is the treatment. What, what is the remedy? What is the surgical procedure that we're to do on this person? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 19 in the phrase, and one turns him back. That word turns him back is one Greek word. It simply means what it says, turn around, change direction. He's going astray. You're to turn him around. And who is to turn him around? Well, look at what it says. It says one. One. That means someone. Anyone. This is not a job for the pastor. This is not a job for the elders. This is the job of every Christian. And James says, when you see him going astray, you're not to watch him and learn from his mistakes. You're not to call your friends and warn them about the guy. James says you are to turn him around. Now you say, Dan, isn't it God's work to bring people back? Yes, it is. It is the unique work of the Spirit of God. But guess what? God also uses you and me. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed, how did God bring David back? You remember? He used a man by the name of Nathan. You see, this is the responsibility of every one of us to be a Nathan in somebody else's life. I think we typically like to protest like Cain, am I my brother's keeper? Well, you may not be your brother's keeper, but you are your brother's brother. And James says, my brothers, if one of you wanders from the truth, someone, someone, bring him back. You say, well, how do you do that? How do you turn a strained Christian around? 
Well, you know, the process is rather simple, and the Bible uses very simple language. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, go and reprove him. In Galatians 6, Paul just says, restore him. And James just says, turn him around. It sounds very simple, not very complicated. But let me challenge us with this truth. When you go and do this, it's a simple process. But you better have three intangibles when you go. And let me give you those three intangibles. The first is the right motive. The right motive. I'm convinced that this is the most difficult thing we have to do in our Christian relationships. And a lot of people have bungled this when they've tried to go to somebody. And so it's very important that when we go, we go with the right motive. And that motive is love. And if love is not your motive, then you're going to gossip about that person. If love is not your motive, you're going to kick that person when they're down. You're going to drive them off. You're going to give up on them. It's love that makes me respond like the Good Samaritan who went out of his way to pick up a fallen neighbor. It's love that's going to make me respond like the father of the prodigal who when he saw his son coming didn't condemn him. He felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. It's love that's going to cause me to respond like the shepherd who left the 99 in the field and went out and found that one lost sheep. Jesus demonstrated that in the way he dealt with his disciples because they were always wandering. Every time he turned his back, they were arguing about who was the greatest. They were full of pride. They couldn't grasp the concept of servanthood. They wouldn't wash each other's feet because of their pride. They wanted to abandon the hungry multitudes to fend for themselves. They wanted to call down fire from heaven and burn up cities. And finally, the night of his arrest, they all abandoned him and ran away. And Peter denied with curses that he even knew Jesus. But Jesus kept loving them, kept reaching out to them, kept being patient with them, kept forgiving them, and he won them back. Except for one, Judas, which I think is an important omission. And I think it tells us there's no guarantee that we will bring every wonder back. But our task is to try, and our motive must be love. And then there's a second intangible, and that is you must go with the right attitude. And the attitude is spelled out in Galatians 6.1, where Paul says, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you are to go and restore him. But in that verse, he gives us three points about the attitude that I want you to see. The first is, he says, you who are spiritual. You must be spiritual. This is not a fleshly activity. For one believer to do surgery on another, they have to be qualified. And the qualification is, if you're going to do spiritual surgery, you have to be spiritual. You say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean I've got to be perfect? No. You know what this means? It means exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 7. 
when he said, you need to take the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to do surgery on your brother. The qualification to being spiritual is you need to be confessing your log to the Lord. You need to be honest before the Lord about your own sin, and then you're able to reach out to your brother and help him with his. So the first attitude is you have to be spiritual. The second attitude is you have to be gentle. It says you're to go in a spirit of gentleness. A carnal Christian is probably the most sensitive person in the world. I know because I've been there. You can't just barge into this person and beat them over the head with your Bible and hope they're going to turn around and come back. It doesn't work that way. They're very sensitive. They're very defensive, just like I would be at the eye surgeon. They're flinching from that. And we have to come to them, not just as a spiritual person who has confessed their own sin, but in gentleness with that person. And then the third attitude is humility. Because Paul says you're to look to yourself lest you too be tempted. You don't come to this person with your thumbs under your suspenders saying I'm God's gift to you to straighten you out. You don't come with your nose in the air saying how did you ever get this far down? No, you come in humility saying I've been there. I know where you're at, and, but for the grace of God, I would be there again. You come in humility. When Peter was about to stray away from Jesus, I love what he told him in Luke twenty-two thirty-two. He said, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You're going to stray, Peter. You're going to deny me. But when you get turned around, I want you to strengthen your brother. What's he saying? I want you to use this failure in your life to strengthen your brothers. We all have failures in our life. Our pride says, I want to hide those things. Jesus says, I want you to use those things in the life of another person. Can you imagine sitting down with Peter? And you're strained, and Peter comes to you and says, did I ever tell you about the time? Did I ever tell you about the time that Jesus needed me the most, and I let him down? See, we've all got those episodes in our lives, and some of us try to hide them. We need to bring them to the light and say, this would be helpful for me to sit down with my brother and say, let me tell you what I did. I was right where you are, and Jesus turned me around, and he can turn you around as well. Then the third intangible is the right resource. What's the resource? Well, I think it's right here in the context of our passage, but because the previous six verses talk about prayer. And verse 16 says, the fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. See, I can make an impact on that wayward brother through prayer. Abraham prayed for Lot, and when God delivered Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah, here's what it says in Genesis 19.29. It says he did so because he remembered Abraham. In Exodus 32, Moses stood in the gap before God and prayed for wayward Israel. God said, I'm going to 
destroy them. And Moses prayed, and it says an amazing thing there. It says God changed his mind. Moses prayed for wayward Israel, and God did not destroy them because of the prayer of Moses. Wow. Listen to what Jesus said to Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Abraham prayed Lot out of Sodom. Moses prayed Israel out of annihilation. Jesus prayed Peter out of Satan's sieve. Who are you praying for? Whoever that person is on the top of your triage list needs to be on the top of your prayer list as you pour out your heart before the Lord for them. So there's the treatment. You're to turn him around with love, with gentleness, with humility, with prayer. And then the third point is the tribute in verse 20. Notice verse 20. He says, He turns a sinner from the error of his way, will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. But I love what he says at the beginning of that verse. He says, Let him know. Let him know that this is what he's doing. Recognize that fact. Pay tribute to that fact. If you are in the military and you save someone's life, you might win a medal of honor. James is saying this is a higher medal. This is a higher accomplishment. You are a hero in that person's life because you are doing two amazing things. Number one, you are saving his soul from death. Now, death here could be spiritual death or physical death. Either one could apply. If it's spiritual death, it's talking about broken fellowship with God. Remember when God said to Adam and Eve, if you, the day you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall die? You say, well, they ate and didn't die. Yes, they did die. They died that day spiritually because fellowship was broken with God. The father of the prodigal said this in Luke 15, 24, this son of mine was dead. And he's come back to life. Well, he wasn't dead physically. He was dead in separation from the Father. That is spiritual death. And when you and I commit sin and go wayward, when we don't confess that to the Lord, it creates that barrier between us and God and causes broken fellowship, spiritual death. And then the other possibility is physical death. And that reminds us that because some Christians stray from the truth, they die before their time. First Corinthians 13 or 11:30 says, "For this reason, because of your sin, many among you are weak and sick, and a number, what? Sleep. A number die before their time. You see, God may have intended for you to live to be 70, but you only live to be 45 because of sin. And that probably is the application here because in the context, in verse 15, he's talking about those who are sick because of sin and the possibility of that. And so here he takes it a step further that a person could actually lose their life. If you intervene in a person's life, you are saving that person, their soul from death, spiritual and physical. That's heroic. 
And then the second thing he says is, you will cover a multitude of sins. And that includes sins in the past and sins in the future. Real sins and potential sins. When you intervene in a person's life, all those sins that he has committed are now confessed and they're covered. And all those potential sins have been prevented because you have intervened into his life. What a great thing. You have stopped this person from going and you have covered a multitude of sins. That's an amazing accomplishment. What's really cool here is we all know that that multitude of sins is covered by God, but he doesn't say just that God covers them. He says, you cover them. Whenever you know about a person who is straying from the truth, you have two options. You can expose their sin, gossip about it, tell others about it, or you can step into that person's life and cover those sins. That's heroic. And actually, the last words of James' letter are a quote from Proverbs 10, 12. And the whole quote goes like this. Love covers a multitude of sins. Which tells me that love is synonymous with going to that brother or sister who's straying in gentleness, in love, in humility, in prayer, and turning them around. Love covers a multitude of sins. One day a husband and wife were fighting They were really going at it back and forth, back and forth. So the wife said, why don't we write down our complaints on a piece of paper and we'll show them to each other so we'll know exactly how we feel. So the husband said, okay, let's get some paper. So they sat down with paper and they sat across from the desk from each other and they began to write on this paper. And they would look up in anger and write again and look up, shake their head and write again, look up, remember something else and write it down. They kept writing and writing. Finally, the wife finished. The husband was still going. He was still looking up, writing. He turned his paper over. She had written on one side. He was writing on the second side. He kept looking at her, looking down, writing. He kept writing. And she watched him writing, and he was writing more than her. She was feeling pain, agony, tears, hurt. Finally, he says, I'm finished. And she said, all right, let's exchange sheets. So they did. As soon as she saw his sheet, she said, give me my sheet back, and she took it back and she tore it up. And the reason she did is because she looked at his sheet, and in spite of his anger, in spite of his pain, he had written on every line, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And when she saw that much love, it covered a multitude of sins. Who's on top of your triage list this morning? And are you lovingly going and turning that person around with that attitude of gentleness, humility, prayer? 
my first year in Bible college, there was a fellow there who'd come out of a similar background as me. Sharp guy. He, he was having a lot of struggles. In fact, someone suggested to me that I ought to try to encourage him. It sounded like a good idea, but I guess I was too busy trying to master the Bible because I never got around to it. That summer, he strayed back into the drug scene and died of an overdose. Now, maybe I couldn't have made a difference. But the sad thing is, I never tried. And still today, I regret abandoning a wounded soldier. There are hurting people in our midst. There are hurting people in our lives. People who are straying. And yes, we need a military mentality. We're in a battle. But we also need a mass unit. Let's reach out and pick up the wounded. we close our service, I'm going to suggest one or two prayers for each of us in this room. You may be the person who's straying. If you are, then your prayer needs to be, Lord, I'm straying from the truth. And today, I want to turn around and come back to you. Or you may be sitting here today and your relationship is right with the Lord, but you've got somebody on your heart on the top of your triage list. And so I would suggest that your prayer would be, Lord, don't just place that person on my heart, but let me be Jesus to that person this week. To reach out and lovingly, humbly, gently, Turn them around.